Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the Archaeology Show. TAS goes behind the headlines to bring you the real stories about archaeology and the history around us. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Archaeology Show, episode 156. On today's show, we talk about an ancient board game, a Roman market town, and new discoveries at Machu Picchu. Let's dig a little deeper into the history of board games. That was bad. Let's dig a little deeper, just like the Romans did. Let's dig a little deeper, just like the Romans in England, where they just kept digging and digging and digging. <laughs> Let's really bad. dig a little deeper into the jungles of Peru. Let's just dig a little deeper. Welcome to the show, everybody. Today, we are coming at you from Quartzsite, Arizona. I mean, that's pretty aggressive. I'm not coming at anybody, <laughs> but when I do that, they bring out pepper spray. But uh, Yes, well, you are a large uh, man. So. Yes, indeed. All right. Yes, so we are in the middle of Arizona. Well, not really the middle, the middle of the west side of Arizona. Yep. Quartzsite, big RVing event here. We went to the show this week. Yeah. Uh, it's a ridiculous COVID Omicron breeding ground. Oh, we for were, sure. We were like one of... The only people masked. Yeah. So <laughs> we didn't stay very long and we tried to stick to the outside spaces. Yeah. For the most part. But yeah, not a lot of people taking it seriously down here. Yeah. But for sure. the spot that we're actually parked in our RV is like out in the desert. We're just on some BLM land and you get to stay there for free. So it's mm-hmm. been really cool being here. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, we have a solar setup we've mentioned before with lithium batteries, which we're doubling in a couple months here to really increase our capabilities out here. Mm-hmm. We've got to manage this pretty closely, and we don't want to manage it as much. No. So we're going to double our capacity for yep. intake and storage. Yeah. Being and, off grid is like yeah. just such a freeing feeling, even though we have to manage our power so closely. It yeah. still is so cool to be like completely off grid like this. Yeah. If you want to hear more stuff like this, check out the Archaeotech podcast because Paul and I sometimes talk about this stuff quite a bit because, you know, we are traveling workers. We work mm-hmm. full time and pretty much everyone in archaeology that's not at a university also does that. Right. You know, so they even even people who have full time jobs in an office in a town somewhere, they often will go on field projects where they are in hotels, camping, you mm-hmm. know, they're remote and they come home on the weekends or every ten days or something like that. So it's pretty common it's more common than it's not to be away from home and being a nomad. And if you have an R V or want to do this sort of lifestyle, then you know, that's why we talk about it. Yeah, archaeology is kind of perfect yeah. for it. I mean we've been on some camping projects where if we'd had an RV like this with solar and everything, it would have been a much more comfortable experience right. for sure. You know what else is great to have in an RV? What? A couple of great board games. Oh, wow. Yeah. You know who else <laughs> thought that? <laughs> who? Ancient Tell me. Saudi Arabians. <laughs> wow. Well, near Saudi Arabia anyway. Near it. Yeah. Yes. I guess it says southeast of Saudi Arabia. But mm-hmm. anyway, we 
are going to talk about an article that we saw, and we've got a couple different links in here about this same article. There's a few different places that reported it, and then I went back to actually the press release from the Polish Center of Mediterranean Archaeology at the University of Warsaw, which is where the team is based that actually made the find. And... It's pretty cool. It says archaeologists unearth 4,000-year-old stone board game in Oman. That's where this is, not Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. And you know, the thing is, when you first open the first article that we linked to, I'm like, so I see a rock that has some lines etched in it and some depressions. <laughs> That's got to be the board game that they're yeah, talking about. Definitely. But then they've got their scale and their north arrow like on some other rocks. And I'm wondering if they just kind of got those out of the way to, to keep the, the quote board game in focus or what the case is there. I'm not really sure. I wonder because you always, before you begin excavating an area, you always sort of like brush it off, clear it off and take a picture before you actually touch anything that's in the unit that you're about to excavate. Yeah. So I wonder if this photo is some kind of like pre-excavation photo and that's why it's in this kind of like Mm -hmm. awkward angle where you can see that there's a grid with the holes in it there, but it definitely doesn't seem like it's like the focal point yet. It's not like museum quality photos of the artifact, basically. Right. This is a field photo. Yeah, definitely a field photo. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. And it's a pretty good size, too. It's It's a 30 centimeter scale that's in there. So the actual portion of it that they have that's visible it looks like it's about 25 centimeters across mm-hmm, yeah. and maybe 10 centimeters um, up and down although it could be partially buried it looks like it could be yeah, yeah. yeah but you know i might see something like this and go it's definitely artificial it's definitely something that was made by humans whether or not i would know it was a game board would depend largely on my experience yeah and like the context of the area and if stuff like this has been found before mm-hmm. or it really takes somebody having seen something like this before to recognize what they're looking at because i know i certainly wouldn't have looked at that and gone game board (laughs) yeah there's a game known as the royal game of ur and it was a two-player game similar to backgammon and they think similar to this game and that was dated to around 4500 years ago uh, from the city of ur which is an ancient mesopotamian city that we've mentioned on other shows in fact paul zimmerman who is on my host on the architect podcast has been on this show recently Mm -hmm. talking about that so if you you're new to the show go back a couple episodes and and look at the stuff where we're talking about Iraq. Mm -hmm. We don't necessarily talk about Ur too much in there because it wasn't about that, but he mentions it in passing. Mm -hmm. But lots of cool stuff that we we talked about on those. This was actually found in a structure near the village of, and I'm going to get this wrong, Ain Bini Sida, A-Y-N-B-A-N-I-S-A-I-D-A-H, however that's pronounced. Mm -hmm. And... Yeah, they were they were excavating and and found lots of cool things and this is just one of them. Yeah, I think it just shows that this area was much further along in development than was previously thought because they found things like board games and mm-hmm. some of the other artifacts and things that they found too, like the copper production and stuff like that, Yeah, that it just kind of made them rethink the, the whole society and what was going on there. Because if you get to the point where you have time to make a board game and play a board game, like that's a, that's a really thriving society or town yeah. that is at that point where they have the time and the energy and the resource availability to do that. It's just amazing to me to think that people had the were in cities that had the leisure time to be able to do stuff like this four thousand years ago. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were building pyramids just as long ago. But I mean, thinking about societies 
just thriving. I don't know. In, in this day and age, it's just our bias of being in the future that you feel like everything prior to like Victorian England was the prehistoric like, Stone Age. It was like dredgery. Yeah. Dredgery. Dredgery. No, they were dredging <laughs> a little bit too. But no, you you feel like it's like it's like it's just a bunch of, you know, hunter gatherers. Yeah. But it's very much not true. Very not that there's not. anything wrong with hunter gathering. No. But but these groups of people had really like developed really sophisticated yeah. societies and it seems silly that a board game would be evidence of that, but it totally is. And I'm yeah. looking at the picture of this game, and do you know what it totally reminds me of? Hmm. Moncala. Oh, yeah. You know the game where you've got like a, a grid with two rows right. and the little cups, and you move your colored beans or stones or whatever you have. Marbles. Marbles, yeah. And I can't actually remember how you win or lose or whatever, but I know that you're moving your beads from one you're, glass to another. Yeah, you're moving your groups of them based on how many's in there. Yeah, like you count yeah. out one at a time around and Yeah, I think yeah. you've got to get so many in before you can yeah. move them on. Yeah. yeah. But that's what this that to give you like an image in your mind if you can't go to the link right now. But that's what this board game grid yeah. setup looks like to me. Yeah, it's kind of neat. It's a little shallow, though, so I'm wondering what it would have been used for if it could have been used for, like, they said backgammon-like game for the City of Ur game, but mm-hmm. the Royal Game of Ur, but I'm not really sure how to play backgammon. I know I'm it's not played either. with, like, yeah. checkers-looking pieces mm-hmm. on, you know, like little triangles and stuff, but I'm not I'm not really sure how to play that. So things I like to see about this, though, is, is what this really means, and, you know... I mean, it just means that they had the time and, and the leisure ability to make something like this and to sit down and, and play a game, probably yeah. with a, a nice fermented beverage and, uh, sure. you know, <laughs> and have a good time. And board games are still like one of the most fascinating things. I don't think board games will ever truly go away. Uh, no. They may become virtual or something like that. But the the idea of moving things around on a board and doing stuff, I mean, people have been playing games like that for thousands and thousands of years. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And it's just... Uh, it's just really cool. And there's a story from Jerusalem in one of these articles where <laughs> they feel like they think this is what happened, but bored Roman soldiers carved a grid for a checkers-like game into the steps of the Damascus Gate in Jerusalem <laughs> around 1,800 years ago. That's just, so crazy. Yeah, they're just sitting there like, when are we going to go? Yeah. I, what I really take out of that story is the military hasn't changed in 1,800 years. <laughs> it's like... Soldiers hurry still up and get wait. bored. Hurry up and wait. Yeah. Line up, and then we all just end up sitting around <laughs> and then etching into the Damascus Gate. Uh-huh. And you yeah. are speaking from experience here. Yes. <laughs> yes. I don't know how many times I've been... I've been rushed and rushed and rushed to get to a, a location and do stuff. And then you sit for 18 hours just waiting for something else to happen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but at least you're ready. I guess that's the point. Yes, totally ready. Yeah. Yep. You mentioned the copper production. They found evidence of that also at this site, which dates parts of it at least to 3200 to 1200 BCE, which mm-hmm. uh, they're playing with dates around here because this says 4,000 year old board game. But then this is 3,200, which would be 5,200 years ago. Yeah. Well, so, I think that's the range, 3,200 to 1,200 BCE. So right. the game is from somewhere in that in range. In the middle of that, yeah. yeah. But copper production, 5,200 years ago? Yeah. 5,000 years ago? <laughs> that is a long time ago. I mean, that's awesome. Yeah. Copper production. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So anyway, that is pretty cool. We have, as I mentioned, at least three different links for that one. And it's, it's, a, it's just a really neat thing. Now, from there, we're going to go over to more Romans because I feel like 
there was another podcast I used to listen to that doesn't really produce anymore that was a news show and they always had their obligatory Stonehenge news story because <laughs> there's always something about Stonehenge. Well, it seems yeah. lately it's like Rome. there's there's always <laughs> something that includes Romans and sometimes that also involves the HS2 dig, which we mentioned last time, last week, something yep. else that was uncovered. Again, Roman-based, so go check that episode out. But we've got another cool Roman find, this time a market, found on the HS2 dig in the UK. Back in a minute. Looking to expand your knowledge of x-rays and imaging in the archaeology field? Then check out an introduction to paleoradiography, a short online course offering professional training for archaeologists and affiliated disciplines. Created by archaeologist, radiographer, and lecturer James Elliott, the content of this course is based upon his research and teaching experience in higher education. It is approved by the Register of Professional Archaeologists and the Chartered Institute for Archaeologists as four hours of training. So don't miss out on this exciting opportunity for professional and personal development. For more information on Pricing and course structure, visit paleoimaging.com. That's P A L E O imaging.com and check out the link in the show notes. Welcome back to the Archaeology Show, episode 156. And as promised, we're going over to the HS2 dig, which, if you are a regular listener to the show, you know that it is a high speed railway between London and Birmingham in the UK, the United Kingdom. The HS2 is I don't know, the project designation or like they name highways that way. I don't know if they name railroads that way. Uh, I'm yeah. not sure what's I'm not really sure where the two comes from, yeah. but the just Where's of it HS1? is... Yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> but it's basically a huge, huge, huge project and there is so much archaeology that they're uncovering. Yeah. And I, it sounds like they, I mean, they know where, they know where all these like ancient sites are because there's a lot of stuff on the surface, but it sounds like they just can't avoid a lot of it. And that's yeah. why they have to go through so much excavation just to be able to build this railway. So, yeah. So this particular find was, is a, what they're calling a Roman market town. Mm-hmm. Now that in itself is astounding to me. Like it's an entire town. That's what you're telling me you found. Yeah. Like that was unknown. It's just been sitting under someone's (laughs) farm where now there's a train going to be, by the way, but it's been sitting under someone's farm and it's now it's a town that's been there. Yeah. It's like how many things is under the ground. That's the thing is I don't think it was unknown. That's why I'm, that's what I'm saying where I think that they had a route that they had to take with this railway and it just means excavating things that are known and have been known throughout history and this is just one of them that happens oh, to be maybe. in the way and they have to, they have to excavate it. Yeah. Yeah. So the the Roman market town it was found in yeah. South Northamptonshire. South I mentioned this <laughs> in the last show. I know the names. South Northamptonshire. <laughs> Sure, that's fine. I mean, I guess there's a North Northamptonshire and an East Northamptonshire. Uh, probably, because, yeah. you know, cardinal directions, yeah. you know. And the site itself is called Black Grounds because of the super dark, nearly black soil that they are excavating through in order to uncover the town. Catholic priests get to name themselves, right? Like the Pope does? Do they all get to do that or is it just the Pope? I think it's just the Pope. Oh, yeah, like cardinals and stuff don't have a special name. Because I would be Cardinal Directions. <laughs> oh my God, you're such a nerd. Why didn't I see that coming? I don't know. Oh my God, 15 years. You'd think I would see these coming, but nope. <laughs> That's going to be my rapper name too. Oh my God, you're Cardinal such a nerd. Directions. Anyway, back to the archaeology Cardinal Directions. <laughs> So they do know that this town began as an Iron Age village around approximately 400 BCE. That's so long ago. It is. It's, you know, 2400, 2500-ish years ago, right? Yeah. And they know this because they found at least 30 roundhouses that date that period. And Mm -hmm. I believe, and you might be able to fill in here, but I believe roundhouse is the name for the, like, 
the the main structure type that people of that time period lived in. Yes, only Iron Age savages made their houses round. It wasn't until we started making houses square that real progress began. <laughs> I would love to have a round house. It sounds way more interesting. Angles. Who needs angles? Our house has browns. It has six of them. Oh, but those are wheels. We're mostly square. Kind of different. We're, in a, we're literally in a box right now. Yeah. So what they're postulating happened with this Iron Age town is that over time... It became sort of a trading post, which brought more prosperity to the area, and it basically grew into a larger town. And sort of at the same time, the Roman influence was growing in the area, and it kind of became, you know, Romanized, basically. Mm -hmm. And by the early part of the millennia, it was basically a Roman trading town because there was enough Roman influence over it and people that lived there who either were Roman or had adopted Roman culture that it was kind of considered a, a Roman town by that point. So, of course, we know the the history of Romans in the UK, and they left completely around 400 CE. And it does seem like the Romans had enough influence over this town that when they sort of pulled out of the area, the the city just kind of died out. And by the 1700s, there's like actual historical resources that that show that it was known by the medieval residents of the area that there were ruins there and that they were the ruins of an ancient Roman town, but Mm. it had been abandoned. So that's kind of how we know that there's something there on the surface that has been known and people have known about it for a long time. It just was never in the way of modern progress. So it stayed covered under the ground until now because now it is in the way. I bet there has been lots of things if this wasn't protected i don't know but mm-hmm. i bet there's been lots of things that have just been dredged up by plows yeah over maybe. the centuries yeah how do we know that there was such a heavy roman influence on this town <laughs> how do we artifacts of course what else that's so lame <laughs> i know i wrote that like i wrote that exactly in our notes yes. <laughs> and then you read it that same way yeah you're such a dork <laughs> <laughs> So the items that they found included Roman coins and also Roman deities on some of the items, like carved on them or impressed on them or however it was done, including like pottery and then also like metal weights for scales. So they when you see the deities for a a culture on something, you know that they really had a heavy influence in the area. And then in addition to that, they also had like Roman style brooches and traces of lead based cosmetics that were known to be used by Romans, Hmm. which just shows how like how far reaching like just like the styles and everything of Rome itself to reach all the way up into the UK. And then you see it in the styles of the jewelry, the brooches and also in the the makeup and the cosmetics that yeah. the, that they're wearing. So I thought that was pretty cool that they were able to identify that, those traces of that material. Hmm. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. It turns out they found a graveyard as well with cremated remains yep. in Roman style urns. It's good things the Romans had a style. I know. Because it makes them really easy to identify. <laughs> yeah, they really definitely like got into this area and into this town and like made their mark on it because there's Roman style everything everywhere that they're finding. Yeah, one of the things that is like distinctly Roman to me mm-hmm. is that the layout of the town is Roman and yeah. it's just like 
if the Romans are known for anything, it's coming it's in. Layout. It's coming in with infrastructure. Yeah, yeah, right? totally. Like everywhere they went, they just brought grids and square things to yeah, them. They did. Yeah. yeah, that's why those those round savages soon became square <laughs> Romans. So I mean, would we say soon? It took like you know. I mean, quite a few years, at least five hundred years, to make that happen. We just talked about a four thousand year old game board, so I'm going to go ahead <laughs> well, and say true. soon. That's true. Yeah, yeah. that was a quick turnaround, I suppose. Yep, they had a large ten meter wide stone paved road right down the middle of town. Yeah, apparently a road that large is kind of uncommon. So the archaeologists in charge of the dig are, they're saying that because it was such a large, wide road, it just shows how this town was really an outpost for trading. Mm -hmm. And it was a a super important town as far as like moving goods and stuff like that. They needed this huge, large road in order to do that. Yeah. There's also a uh, another distinctly Roman feature, which is mm-hmm. there's a division between the residential district and the more industrial district where the workshops and bakeries and stuff like that mm-hmm. were. Yeah, so, totally. So yeah. You, you've you got almost like a class distinction probably beginning when you see a division like that. Mm-hmm. Of course, the town, I think, kind of died out before it advanced along to a point where it was a big enough city where you could truly see class distinctions like that in the architecture. architecture but it was definitely like heading that direction. So... Do you know why Rome ended up pulling out of the UK and and so abruptly, too? Because I think they kind of like abandoned ship, basically. But I don't really know the reasons behind it. Honestly, I don't know. Mm -hmm. But I I mean, I do know that, I mean, the people, the like Anglo-Saxon people of that area were... Mm -hmm you know, pretty strong-willed, and yeah. maybe they just resisted Roman influence. It's not into it. Maybe there was, I mean, to, I'm not a Roman scholar, but maybe there, there could have been a number of reasons, like, you know, it was just too hard and too far away from Rome. Yeah. And maybe there was, I mean, there was clearly growing instability in Rome. Yeah. So, yeah, Rome is starting to fracture yeah, at that point. So Maybe they just had to pull back and, and stabilize the empire. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, but it is interesting that you, you can see a town that's, like, flourishing, right? And mm-hmm. then all of a sudden, the Romans start backing away (laughs) and the town just kind of dies out after that. It makes you wonder, like, did all the people go back to Rome? And -hmm. that's why did they disperse from that town and go to other towns in the area? Or were they there for a little while and it just couldn't maintain without the influence and, help from from Rome. I just yeah. I, w- I wonder what causes it to die out because that's always a big conversation in archaeology is when you talk about a city or a society that collapses, you don't want to indicate that all of a sudden they were just poof gone. Right. But something happened happened to these people and I just would be very curious to find out what because it yeah. just seemed to end pretty abruptly. I don't know, but that's pretty much the end of this segment. So, let's take off and see if we can't find any Romans in Peru. When we go talk about Machu Picchu, I don't think we're going to find any. No. Maybe some ancient board games, but... No. No. Maybe some Spaniards invading. All right. And on that great disappointment, (laughs) let's end this segment. Welcome back to the Archaeology Show, episode 156. And as promised, we are in Peru, Machu Picchu. And I, I don't know of too many people that wouldn't immediately have the image of the town, I guess, of Machu Picchu. Sure. It's Fortress. Like that, yeah. You know, like whatever the, it is. That image of terracine yeah. all across the mountains. It's very the, distinctive. With the mountain peaks in the in the background, like of the of the area where it's at, you never see it in the other direction. Like yeah. this is the photo that you see. Yeah. And that's in the NBC News article that we linked to here first, but we've also got a Science Direct article that directly mentions this stuff, the actual uh, source material. Mm-hmm. But the popular article was written by NBC News, and it's called Ancient and Hidden 
Machu Picchu's complexity uncovered by archaeologists. Now, that's a little bit... That's a little bit uh, misleading. A little bit much. <laughs> like, it's pretty complex, and we knew that. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Before we talk about this article, though, why don't you talk about going to Machu Picchu? Because yeah, you've been there. I have. I went there in... Oh, gosh, 2003, probably 2003. So, oh, my God, I can't believe it's been almost 20 years. Is that not crazy? (laughs) So I was in college and I did my field school in Peru, which I think I've talked about before. And a couple of us decided to add on a trip at the end to go to Machu Picchu. And it was such an amazing experience. And just a little bit of context, like geographically speaking, of, of where you're going and what you're doing. But you go to this town called Cusco, which is high up in the mountains. I didn't look up the elevation or anything, but you're, I mean, you're talking like probably 8,000 feet or something like Mm -hmm. that just at Cusco. And the best way to do it is to go to Cusco. It's a really cool, really old ancient city, but it still is occupied. It's still a modern, well, not modern, but it's, it's a town that you can go and stay in. And just, you have to acclimatize yourself to that elevation because it is so high up there. Mm -hmm. And then you go to Machu Picchu, which is another like two or 3000 feet up. So it's this like crazy elevation experience and just be prepared for altitude sickness to potentially be a problem for you. A lot of people I was with experienced that. I I did not, but I I don't normally have an issue with that. So that wasn't surprising, but it was just such a cool experience in Cusco, the town itself. We won't go into that too much, but it's an amazing place. It's, It's like a Spanish town that was built on top of, Mm -hmm. of ancient Incan remains basically. So you've got this fusion of the different architecture types. And then from there you take a train to get up to Machu Picchu and it's not a short train ride. It was a pretty long train ride. If I remember a couple hours, I think. And then you get there and there's, you're at the bottom of this mountain and you take these buses or vans or something to get up to the actual entrance and you're just climbing and climbing and climbing in elevation the whole way. And then you finally get up there and like to walk around and see Machu Picchu, you have to like hike straight up and straight down and straight up and straight down. But oh my gosh, it was such an experience and it's so like just embedded in my brain at this point. So it was such a cool, cool experience and I highly recommend it to anybody who has the opportunity to go visit for sure. Yeah. Machu Picchu itself is at 7,972 feet and uh, it's got an area of 125.8 square miles. Is it really only at 8,000 feet? It is. Man, I remember it being yeah. so much higher than that, but it was also 20 years ago, so don't judge yeah. me too hard. Yeah, I was just looking up the, the Wikipedia page, actually. Yeah. So, And there's a phone number listed, which is weird. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's like a building and everything there. I so, want to yeah. call Machu Picchu. <laughs> Where does that number go? Does somebody answer the phone and just it, go, There's a building uh, and hola, a museum and all of that stuff. <laughs> so... Oh man! But yeah, so Machu Picchu was basically at its hey in its heyday in like the 15th century, and and to be honest, doesn't seem to have been I don't know if inhabited is the right word, but but populated or inhabited for very long. Mm-hmm. Uh, to be honest, I mean, no, it, was a, it wasn't. Yeah, it was quite the effort to build. And, yeah. and my guess is, to be honest, I would assume, and I don't know for sure, but I would assume that uh, it was just hard to sustain and maintain. Well, I think so. Yeah. And and they did such a brilliant job with all the terracing, as you can still Mm -hmm. see it today. But there's also like reports of that terracing going very, very badly. And and there being landslides and erosion issues and stuff like that. Like it was it's a great place, but 
it was not as sustainable as I think that the Incans were hoping yeah. it would be at the time. Yeah, for sure. And just really quick, I, I had to figure out where my elevations got crisscrossed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Cusco is at 11,200 feet. Oh, so I had you them backwards. Down. Yeah. So you go all the way up to Cusco and then you go down to, to Machu Picchu. So Man. there's where I got my elevations crisscrossed. I've been in some high elevations, but I don't think I've ever been to a town yeah. that was that high. It is. It was crazy. You do feel like you can't quite get a full breath when you're when you're yeah. breathing there. Yeah. Even if you're in perfect physical condition, it's just like you can't quite do it. So anyway, I had to clear that up. <laughs> I stuck my head out of an airplane window at 11,000 feet. But aside um, from that... I don't think you should do that. Yeah. No, that wouldn't we, be a good we, idea. We had to go that high up when in uh, flight training just to experience it a little bit. Uh-huh. The instructor had oxygen on uh, and I did not. Oh. Yeah. Wow. So you, you got you to gotta understand the, the warning signs of hypoxia, basically. Oh, okay. Sure. But yeah, I was in North Dakota and it was hot as balls out. Even 11,000 feet, it was still <laughs> pretty warm out at mm-hmm. 11,000 feet. So you can open the window of a little Cessna. Yeah. And that was pretty much the limit of that plane, too. Yeah. Isn't it amazing to think that there's mountains at that exact same height? I know. We it's were so like, high. It's so crazy. Yeah. So, <laughs> but yeah. So what was found was actually not in Machu Picchu proper. It's really more the Machu Picchu metropolitan area, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. to speak. It was a series of structures that were found, and it says among the sprawling ruins, but they really yeah. mean sprawling because on the outskirts of Machu Picchu is a ceremonial site called... Chachamba. Mm-hmm. I don't know if Chachamba is right, but Chachamba. Yeah. And I remember this from when I was there. There's like a hike that you can take to like almost the next peak over. And it takes you to probably, it's probably Chachamba. Although, like you said, it's there's sprawling mm-hmm. ruins everywhere. So, you know, there's paths that you can take from Machu Picchu proper to go to all of these different places. So yeah. uh, that one might be different from the one that I'm remembering. But anyway, yes, there's, well, this, they're everywhere. This was just under five miles away. So, I mean, in my mind, I mean, that's a that's a day's journey with, with these elevations and stuff yeah. like that. You know, it's probably yeah. not too easy to hike that. Mm-hmm. And they used LIDAR, which we've talked about on this show probably and on the Archaeotech podcast, but that is an acronym which means light detection and ranging, basically mm-hmm. uh, lasers, to be honest, uh, using lasers to look through vegetation and map the contours of the ground. So, in simple terms, what LIDAR does is it pulses really quickly and they use different passes with different angles and things like that. And these lasers have the ability to basically shoot through vegetation. And sometimes it's not even through vegetation. It's just lasers. So they can hit through all the tiny little cracks and crevices. And vegetation is not one of the things that really bounces back on or gets a reading on. Mm -hmm. And often the ground will either directly reveal structures, especially if you're in like a jungle environment that are that are not underground, but just covered in vegetation. Mm-hmm. Or it'll show mounds and, you know, roads and things like that that are just deformations and, and clearly man-made depressions in the ground. Yeah, I guess anything that has an angle to it or is... Yeah, it just doesn't you, look like, natural. Yeah, you can just tell when something... Or- it, well, you can tell when something doesn't look natural, and of course you need to go ground truth it and make sure that yeah, the thing that sure. you think is not natural really isn't natural. And it sounds like that's what they did in this case, is that they had things that were like, hmm, that does not look like yeah. it is a natural part of the environment. And of course, it, it wasn't when they went to actually look. Well, they found several structures that were, I mean, right in the jungle outside of some w- these well-known structures mm-hmm. in, in Chachamba. And they're like, holy crap, this stuff's like right over there. Right. But it's in deep jungle. Yeah. yeah. Like they've got like a small area cleared out around the site that yeah. they know. And then like beyond that, it's just like a mm-hmm. wall of jungle. But there was stuff right there that they didn't even know. I had no idea. That sounds like Peru. Yeah. yeah. I feel like that describes all of Peru. 
Oh, no. Like not- there's stuff everywhere. <laughs> yeah. I know you think that, but like the North Coast is a desert. The North yeah. Coast looks like this. Yeah. We're, we're at, in a desert right yeah. now, so it yeah. looks like that. But, so, but all yeah. the jungly parts, maybe. Yes, all the jungly yeah. parts, and this is definitely yeah. a jungly part. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. They also found parts of a water system that ran through the area, which I would expect there to be one there, and mm-hmm. that makes sense. Although, I would wonder if it's new parts to a new water system or why somebody hasn't taken the existing parts of water system they know were there and just kind of traced where they could go. (laughs) Yeah, because water, I mean, it doesn't take a genius to figure out that water is going to follow a pretty easy path. Mm -hmm. And the simplest path you can give water to go is the way you're going to go, right? And sometimes you've got to make a more circuitous route just just because of logistics. But anybody can kind of figure that out if they need to. Mm -hmm. So, But there's so much water in this area, too, that they could have just been creating a, a system t- from the mm-hmm. nearest like uh, water source, a spring or stream or whatever it was to bring it over to the structure. So it could have been a totally independent structure that there was nothing more of it to follow, you know? Yeah. The main site of Chichamba is actually a stone altar that's kind of in the middle, surrounded by 14 baths. And the thought in one of the articles I read was that, again, back in the 15th century, if you're on your way to Machu Picchu, you stopped at Chichamba for a spiritual bath in order to be clean and pure on the way up to Machu mm. Picchu. So, Yeah, that makes sense. I wonder if they thought there was something special about the water in the area or like what kind of ritual would have been involved mm-hmm. in that. And since it's so close to like contact with Europeans, it makes me wonder if there are some like written accounts of how this yeah. whole thing worked. Of course, they'd be biased, obviously, because they're not in... Yeah. Incan language, but, you know, it still does make me curious about, like, I'm just wondering about what kind of firsthand sources might... Firsthand accounts? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that might be out there about about how Hmm. this... What the right way to go about visiting Machu Picchu was and what you were doing when you did go there. Yeah. Yeah, because there were people, Spanish people, I mean probably at least partially during the time of well right after Machu Picchu was was really in its fluorescence Mm -hmm. so there could have been first-hand accounts that were that were written down that would be interesting to find there could have been accounts that were written down of this crazy high city in the in the mountains in the jungle Mm -hmm. you know from people who actually had gone there when they were younger so well yeah and that's why Cusco has such interesting architecture is because there was an Incan town there and it was an area that was conquered by the Spanish mm-hmm. and they basically just plopped Spanish style architecture on top of the Incan structures that were there. So you get these, there's like a, a church that like the foundation of it is all Incan. And then above that, they built their, their Spanish style church on top of it. Yeah. And you see that kind of like fusion of architecture all throughout the town where they basically just took over, but they're like, Oh cool. This has good bones. Let's just, <laughs> let's just use that and build right on top of it. Yeah. <laughs> Yep. So it's really an interesting area where that con- that contact point between the Spanish and the and the Incans it was just a totally different thing than it was between like Native Americans in North America and the different people Europeans that they interacted with mm-hmm. I feel like the it was a totally different interaction because the people in the yeah. two places were totally different so yeah yeah it's really interesting cool all right well. That's about it for that. So 
thanks for listening to this episode. Check out all the links in the show notes. And again, if you're listening to this, and I know if you're listening to this way into the future, we will no longer have our link that you can click on. However, it's still probably a good service. I'm sure if you're listening to this way into the deep future, and, deep future. and we're all dead, I'm sure that the company of Zencaster is still existing. So please go check them out. Click on the link in our show notes, or you can go to Zencaster. That's Z E N C A S T R dot com. No E at the end there. It's T R dot com. And go to pricing, and then if you use code TAS for the Archaeology Show, just TAS, you can get 30% off your first three months. And they've got some pretty good deals. Yeah, and you can actually sign up for an account for free just to like try, try it out, out and yeah. see what it is. So you don't have to be obligated yeah. to buy anything right away. But if you're thinking about starting a podcast and you have anything to do with people that aren't in the same place, mm-hmm. <laughs> which don't we all now, given COVID and pandemic yeah. restrictions and all that, it's a really great way to have a conversation with somebody and record it. Well, and honestly, even if you're doing a solo show, it's actually a pretty good deal to just record that locally on Zencaster. And the reason I'm saying that is, and to be honest, Rachel and I should do that, but since we're since we're in the same room, we don't. But when you record on Zencaster, as of I think December or November of 2021, they now have automatic transcription. Oh yeah, that's really yeah. great. So for transcription is expensive. Yeah. Now. Automatic transition transcription is never like super great, but it's not bad. No, it's good enough. Yeah, yeah. I've seen it and yeah. it's not bad. Yeah. So, and I've been really bad about including the transcription in most of our episodes that I actually record with Zencaster, but I need to get better at doing that. So, mm-hmm. anyway, resolution for 2022. Uh, I hate resolutions. <laughs> so much uh, to do. Uh, Incidentally, asking for a friend, do we have any volunteers out there that want to help us uh, <laughs> post podcasts and bring in the transcriptions? Because that'd be great. Yeah, that would be amazing. Yeah. It sounds like a trivial thing, but when you're doing 7,000 things related to these podcasts, giving somebody one thing just is a huge weight off your shoulders. Very so, true. Anyway, thanks for listening, and we will be back next time, and we are going to be recording, and well, at least posting the next episode using... Starlink Internet. Oh my God, you're so excited. I'm so excited. <laughs> More to come on the Archaeotech podcast. Wait, we're doing that with Starlink right now too, technically. Technically, it's just we don't ours. We don't own this Starlink. That's it's true. Just, we're borrowing from a friend. I don't count it. <laughs> yeah. All right, see you guys next week. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Archaeology Show. Feel free to comment and view the show notes on the website at www.archpodnet.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ArcPodNet. Music for this show is called I Wish You Would Look from the band Sea Hero. Again, thanks for listening and have an awesome day. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster and Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.